Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. Today, we have something a little different, a lot different, actually. We're, we're introducing sort of like a new sub-genre or sub-format of our podcast. We're calling it an extra. And these are going to be, um, th- these probably most of the time I'm going to take solo um, without uh, Kate Riga. And that's because these are going to be they're not going to mostly do with politics, uh, certainly not kind of the polit- the moment-to-moment politics we talk about on the, the regular weekly podcast. And it is going to be just things I find interesting, and I think you'll find interesting too. And the first one has to do with a with history, and that's you know that's my background before I got into the journalism thing. And specifically, it has to do with a podcast called the British History Podcast, the BHP. And I, you know, it's it's funny. I I started listening to this podcast. I don't know, six months, a year ago. I can't remember exactly. I've been listening to it a lot. I've listened to well over three hundred episodes of this podcast, and I love it. I really, really love it. I cannot tell you how much I love it. It's so good. My only beef is that I'm coming up to the current stuff, right? So I'm almost like out of, because I mean, with the, with, the, uh, with the pandemic, I just binge these things, right? It's, it's like um, I'm like a, a, like, a, like a junkie. So now soon I'm going to have to go. I don't even know how like frequent they are. It's never been an issue because they just keep popping up right in the feed. Um, in any case... What I like about this podcast is, you know, I'm just very into history in general. But what I like about it is that, you know, it it plays to something that is important to me. and, And that is, on the one hand, it's really compelling narrative. Like, I just really enjoy listening to it, right? It really pulls me along. And a lot of people can do that. Not everybody, but people can do that. It's also funny. But not funny, like like I'm not I'm not doing this to I'm not listening to laugh, right? But but you know, keep me engaged, keep me you know a sense of humor in the mix. And while doing all that, it is very deeply nuanced and sophisticated as history, you know. And I spent six or seven years becoming a historian, so it's very big. You have to, you know kind of like I'm 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 ready to criticize anybody who I don't think is is up to snuff of really of really doing history right. And it's all of those things, and it's really. Um, it's really great. And so we have um, we have the guy who is the British History Podcast, named Jamie Jeffers, and we have his producer, Z, who over the, they can get into the details if they want to, but over the course of the series, which I, 
seven or eight years, maybe 11. 10. Yeah, 11. Okay. Yeah. yeah. See, like I said, it hasn't mattered to me because it's just like, it just, this, the, the episodes keep coming up, um, on my, on my, you know, kind of, uh, podcast thing over the course of the, of the, um, of the series, they, they became, they got married. So they're husband and wife, but again, th- that they are producer and the talent, right? This is, you know, you kind of, you get into the media business like me, you're the talent, right? So we're going to talk to, well, first of all, Welcome and thank you for for um, making time for this. Welcome to the Josh Marshall Podcast. Thank you. You've you've actually been um, part of our like political development as well. So yeah, we knew of you and your work for. I, I want to say starting at around 2003, I started reading TPM. I was probably not far behind, and this was before cool. we would have met each other. Yeah. <laughs> well, to, well, you know, I'm I'm I'm. Uh, I'm, I'm flattered. And, 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 and honestly, it's, it's for me, this is like, wow, I'm getting like a command performance of the BHP. So like, this is, this is, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm kind of pinching myself here. Um, so let's just dive in here. One of the things, and this is kind of, this is the hundredth most important thing about the British History Podcast, but it is interesting to me. And I think it goes to something that has been a theme of the podcast throughout, which is the fluid and malleable nature of political and cultural identity. Right. Right. And this is this is something that has been very much in flux in in history over the last four or five decades. You know how enduring these things are. Okay. So now people are listening and you speak with an American accent. Yeah. Yeah. Totally fluid. There's no British accent. And yet, if I'm if I'm understanding this right, you're British national. Yeah. Okay. And you are, so you're a, a British citizen, not an American citizen. And I am a, an American citizen now. Uh, oh, af- okay. Okay. So that's, re- yeah. After, uh, after the 2016 disaster, I was like, yeah, good uh, to lock that in, I guess. Yeah. I've, yeah. I've got to, yeah. I've got to put some skin in the game. <laughs> right. Okay. So that is okay. So that is, but at least I guess for parts that I was listening to, you were not an American, but, yeah. but in, in a broader sense, you, it, as the, as the host of this show, you come at it very much, I'm British. Yeah. I, I sound like an American, but I'm not an American. I mean, again, maybe. So, so I've realized in listening to it how much I have a very hard time thinking about national identity beyond accents. Well, to me, it's almost like the signature thing. Oh, that's interesting. Like you're an, of course you're an American because you sound like that's an American. That's actually kind of rare for an American as well. Because I, when we met back in the day and when I started working on the show, which was maybe a few months after you started. So I've been there from the, not the beginning, beginning, but pretty close yeah, after. Yeah. I was living in Britain as an American mm. doing my PhD program out there. Um and I was always like, you guys are obsessed with accents. They can tell you exactly like within like a five mile radius of where you grew up based on your regional <laughs> right. accent. And they're obsessed right, with it. Right. And if you want a British person to not shut up for a bit, talk about accents. Um, and I always felt like Americans <laughs> didn't do that as much. But I, I guess that was just me. Well, I would say this to, to <laughs> anticipate what I think we, we may get, I may get for, from, from readers. I'm not saying someone with a non-American accent can't be an American, but I'm saying when I hear someone with an American accent, I just, that's an American. So it's now I'm not saying my, my reflex is the reality or, or defines people, but I've realized how I'm like, okay, you know, 
you're not really British, man. Come on, you're obviously yeah. American. What I, so, I, honestly, what I would say is I'm third culture. I, I was I was raised in a British household. Uh, I had a very thick accent uh, until uh, deep into adolescence, actually. Uh, interesting. And school did a good job of beating that out of me because no one can understand you when you've got a thick accent and you're you know you're in Portland. Um, and so that. But the the environment I was raised in was very, very British. Uh, I didn't have barbecue until I was about 20. Like barbecue sauce was a brand new thing for me. And, uh, and is, I went through is, this Is that a thing from- that was like for, for, for a British family that's like you have to isolate, you know, kind of uh, like when you're, when, when Jews or, you know, Orthodox households, there's certain things you just can't expose them to. You're gonna, you know, whatever. Is, I don't know if barbecue is like that for, blew my for mind. maintaining well, your just, Britishness. It was something that my family didn't have. And meanwhile, I'm sat there having brown sauce, which Americans are going to be like, what on earth is brown sauce? So, um, but Ultimately, I think what you're getting at is uh, um, the strangeness of hearing about a, a history of one uh, country or one uh, island nation uh, and not hearing the accent that you typically associate with that. Right. And that it's also and that you present it as internal to British history. Yeah. You know, you're, you're kind of like, it's us, it's, it's our, you know, and, and, and obviously you, what comes up through the podcast is, you, you know, all the shurs and tons and all, you know, all, <laughs> it, it's clear in, in, as you listen over time that you're a Brit and, and that is your history, the, the kind of, you know, just all the things that you kind of get, how someone understands their identity it's it seems all clear except for the thing with the accent. Yeah, I it's funny. It, it hits on something that uh, that I think is actually really important. And and every now and then I, I find myself in this conversation, um, which is I it, it, I guess it's twofold because I, I encounter people. A lot of the reason why in those early episodes I mentioned my nationality was because I, I encountered a lot of blowback because of my accent uh, and I was seen as basically illegitimate. Um and on on the basis of where I was, where I, it was assumed I was born, um, my my basic position on the whole thing, though, is that it is twofold. A, it doesn't matter where someone's born when it, when talking about history. Um, but B, because I got this question a lot. Why would an American be interested in British history? Uh, this is our history, not your history. And large numbers of americans trace their 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 history straight to britain and so it's 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 an odd thing and you hear this primarily from from british listeners who are wondering about my accent um there's kind of an assumption that americans just kind of sprang out of a hole in the ground and <laughs> it was just like a pow um mm-hmm. and so uh so there is there is a uh, a cultural connection there. So even if I wasn't British, which I am, but if even if I wasn't, I I don't think it's Ill, I don't I don't think that on that basis alone it would be illegitimate to have somebody talking about British history. No one no one is that concerned when uh, when a Brit talks about Egyptian history, for example. You know, so yeah, uh, it, I mean, to an American, that's almost the, the most logical thing. You're going to have someone from Oxford talking about yeah Egyptian history. The yeah. kind of like it's almost it's more legitimate than an American because they've got that special <laughs> accent, right? That's how you know about things about Egypt kind of thing. <laughs> 
Okay, so you were you were a lawyer, yeah, and at some with some trajectory, you I guess did you start doing this kind of on the side and then yeah decided yeah. to make a full so so give us this, how do you why did you, you know why did you decide to stop being a lawyer and what motivated you to do this and sort of uh, you know kick the dock away and let let the boat float out into the ocean and not you know not knowing what 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 happens uh so it's an odd story i i was uh like most poor kids who become a lawyer uh i went there i went into the uh uh the practice wanting to do something very meaningful in my case i wanted to um to do civil rights work uh and quickly as those uh, student loan bills started coming in, I realized that I just needed to go to whoever was going to pay me so I could pay off these student loans and maybe afford some ramen. And so I became an insurance defense lawyer, uh, which is about the most soul-sucking work you could possibly ask for. Uh, and it requires an inordinate amount of uh, of hours on top of that. So I hated what I was doing. I was I, I hated how much I was doing it, and I felt bad about it on top of it. And so after practicing for God, what was it like six years? Um, I kind of hit a wall, and I realized that I had to change something. I couldn't do this anymore. Uh, and at the very least, I needed to do something more positive and put something positive in the world because I knew for a fact that the cases that I was defending were not making the world a better place. And so... This is like, are you sure you didn't slip and fall on purpose? Oh, it was so much worse than that. I had some <laughs> okay. really horrific clients. And, and, and the thing about it is, is that... If you are a business owner with business insurance and you get sued, uh, there's a chance that, you know, like I, you don't really get a pick. You're you're you know, you just get assigned this thing and off yep, you go. Yep. So um, just terrible sexual harassment cases, all kinds of stuff. Horrible. So um, so I, I decided, well, I want to do something positive. I want to put something positive in the world. And I ended up going back to one of my very first loves, which was history. I, I, I uh, spent large portions of my childhood uh, learning about history uh, from my grandfather, uh, who primarily was really a storyteller. Um, and he was very gifted at it. And I drifted away from that when I went to college. I took a bunch of history courses and I was horrified to learn how history was being taught uh, in college and how it was an obsession with dates and names. Uh, you would occasionally get into the whys, but not not to the level that I wanted to see. And I, looking back, what I really needed was uh, better guidance uh, and, and somebody to be like, no, no, you keep going in this path and you will end up where you want to go. But I was pretty unhappy with it. So I ended up going down a different path and became a lawyer. Uh, but I went back to to that and decided because nobody at that point was doing a, uh, a podcast on British history. Uh, Mike Duncan had already started his on the history of Rome, but for the most part, like this was the, the early punk rock days of podcasting where it, it, it was mostly like pirate, uh, pirate radio. So anyone with a mic could just get in there and give it a shot. Right. And so I, you know, had more time than sense and decided why not me? And so I just launched this show, um, and did it as a hobby. I honestly just wanted to do something positive and thought, well, I could, I could introduce people to the way that I learned history. Um, and 
at the same time, I could, you know, I, I felt like that was a, a, a unambiguous good. Uh, and at the same time, I could figure out what I want to do with my life if it's not law. Uh, and it turns out it was this. <laughs> I, uh, it very quickly began to take over my life and I was very happy and, and grateful for it. Um, but it's, it's definitely, it started as a very small, just, I think only my parents and maybe a few friends will listen. And, uh, uh, it turned out that just about everybody but my parents listens, which is very exciting. <laughs> now, Z, I want to ask you, a few, and, and let me let me back up to say that I am a member, been a member for a while, well, thank you. but I have yet to listen to any of the member episodes for two reasons. One, because I'm still going through the main episodes, right? And so those are my, that's like my strategic reserve, right? Because I'm about <laughs> to run out and then I have what, there's like at least a hundred, right? At, at yeah, some point, yeah. I mean, it, yeah, a, a lot. And since you occasionally, you know, play like a snippet of a of a of a member episode on the main episode, I've gotten a sense there. And I would know more about your background, clearly, if I did listen to the member episodes and I'm going to. But again, so far, I'm just working my way through the actual history right now. Physical anthropology. You, you, I, I've gotten a, a rough yeah. sense of what your academic background is, so I'm curious to know a little bit more about that. And then being the producer and kind of what that you know, what that means exactly. So those two things. Yeah. So, well, my academic background, I think is, is best described as ill-advised. Um, <laughs> I, I chased down a bunch of paths that were um, neither secure nor particularly fruitful for the most part until the very end. And that meant that I, I have an undergraduate degree in, in a full suite anthropology, which included a full physical anthropology, archaeology background. And I went to... I, I just happened to luck out that my department um, at the school was fantastic. So I, I got a pretty good grounding that I feel like sits solidly with a lot of master's students in those subjects. And I just happened to look into that. Um, from there, though, I I actually pursued sociology. Um, so I'm a, okay. I'm a sociologist by practice. Um, okay. I also work as a sociologist for the government now in addition to, to helping out with the podcast. Um, and I've got my PhD from the London School of Economics. Um, and is that, so that's just a PhD in sociology? It's, I was in a strange, like, um, combined department over there. Okay. But where you would place my work was sort of a political sociology spot. Got it. Okay. Um, and but so I, I guess what I'm, but what I've picked up there in, in some of the discussions is some of that physical anthropology. Yeah backstory there. And that was one of the places where Jamie and I started t bantering back and forth when we started talking was I was saying, hey, you're you're missing some sources here by ignoring archaeology because archaeology can often talk back to our written sources. Um, mm -hmm. And when mm -hmm. historians and archaeologists don't uh, combine their powers, things get missed. Uh, and he was telling me that he was just uncomfortable dealing with those sources because he had no background in that. Um, and so I was like, well, I do. And so that's kind of how we started our collaboration. Um, as Oh, can I, and just, this is, I'm only asking this not to get into your personal lives, but so I can understand the trajectory of the show. Did the show and the show collaboration predate the relationship? It did. Yes. It did. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And again, I'm not trying to get no, into it. I'm only trying to understand, you know, because that helps me understand how the the nature, the original nature of the collaboration. I That's guess it. it. And it was, it's cool because we started very much as a, uh, a creative relationship. Um, and 
And so this podcast has always kind of sat in the center of our lives until we had our two-year-old. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and so making it together started out as this, uh, you know, we became immediate best friends, always up talking about the show, always wanting to collaborate, always wanting to push um, what the show was going to be. And part of why I think our relationship developed past just friends and creators is because we shared a deep value of the democratization of knowledge. Um, and, uh, you know, really taking care with how we teach history in particular, because I think history can be a transformative subject us knowing where we came from, um, and doing so honestly is part of how we're going to move forward, uh, as a species, <laughs> frankly, yeah. as, mm-hmm. as a, and as society. Uh, so when we started talking, we were immediately, we're both like right there saying that that's like, you land with this project that suddenly takes off by accident and, and it's a responsibility. So how do you take that responsibility seriously? Um, and I'm bringing my sociology background, uh, my teaching background, and he's bringing his law and research background and just his ability to, to turn a tail. And we're trying mm-hmm. to cram together and make the best show that we can because we had all these people coming to us saying, I've never heard history like this. I didn't understand uh, what this was. And what's interesting about that was this was all happening while, um, and this was part of my research as a sociologist, um, there was a populist fascist moving movement building in the UK and in the States. And so what we realized what was in our laps was an ability to tell the history of Britain and white Americans in a lot of ways and tell it truthfully, tell it in a way that it cannot become a tool of fascist uh, uh, recruitment because that is what it was happening at the time. So all these things were, were swirling above us and sat in our laps very heavily. And that's kind of how we moved forward and tried to bring all of our talents and all of our, um, all of our training to bear into this one project, just because everyone seemed to tune in at once way more people than we expected. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's funny. Cause one, uh, one, one of my, um, one of my uh, sort of abiding interests and something I've never gotten a fully satisfied, I don't think there is yet a, full set, a fully satisfying answer to it, is why did Eastern Britain, everybody start speaking, you know, Old English? You know, th- that is, n- and, and I know there's, and you've gone into great depth about, you know, the different theories and, 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 and how that lines up with the post-Roman states on the continent, blah, 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 blah. And in the few times I've uh, discussed this in any kind of public context, you immediately get like, whoa, Josh, back off on the fascism, dude. <laughs> you know, your obsession with the Anglo-Saxon. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. I, I'm not, I'm not getting into that. I'm just saying like, how did it come to be that the language displaced? Like, I'm not talking about the sort of the 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 origins of 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 my white identity and stuff like that. So I so I, I get how there's you know because to a great extent, um, you know, white nationalism has made a lot of claim to the Anglo-Saxon. You know, kind of mm-hmm. they. I don't want to say they own it, but they've got a they've bought a lot of stock in it, right? Oh, yeah. And and so you ha- so I see I get what you I, I get what you're what you're talking about there now for for our for our listeners who have not listened to the podcast i i would say that the the majority of the episodes are basically narrative you know kind of narrative discussions moving through you know it, it 
the first episode is literally like starts 40,000 years ago and then it fairly quickly gets up to the Romans and then goes from there. But there are significant, um, I don't want to call them uh, detours, but runs of episodes where there will be some, you know, uh, major new archaeological findings that are relevant to the periods in question. And you'll talk to, you know, do interviews with a series of academics. Um, there's this that I was just listening to relatively recently, this five or six thousand year old woman, a young woman who died and her, her skeleton was recovered. And, um, you know, they've done DNA analysis, blah, 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 blah. So you've had a couple episodes where you talk to the woman who's basically kind of led that project and gets into all the a lot of the ins and outs of not just archaeology in the abstract but also you know there's um a lot of archaeologists work in sort of like the county archaeology commission and there's you know looking at different skeletons that are in this museum and that and kind of how that all works yeah. so it a lot of ground you cover um let me let me let me ask you this and, and this is kind of one of the things that I, I have been struck by is that a lot of the episodes turn on your examination of a lot of primary documents. Um, and, and I know that when we were, you and I were talking, before, you know, kind of when we were talking about doing an episode together, you were very, you know, not a professional historian, I'm not, but, and so I don't know the exact interplay, but you were at least, for a lot of the discussions you have clearly gone back and read through the primary documents. So this isn't just kind of like he's good at telling stories and he's, you know, kind of up on the literature in general. Can you walk me through the process, how these, how, how you, how you put this stuff together? Sure. Um, so typically what I will do uh, when I start crafting a, a, a major arc um, for the show, uh, not for one episode, but you know, where we're going, uh, is I will find one or usually several tertiary sources. Um, so tertiary sources, you've got primary sources, which you mentioned, those are people who are writing either at the time or close in time. Those, the, when you're, if you're listening and you've never encountered this kind of thing, uh, these are like the old parchment books that you imagine being behind glass. Um, so, uh, for example, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle is a primary source. Uh, Snorri Sturluson uh, is either a primary or secondary source, uh, but you, you've got you've got like the Heimskringla and all that. So all these all, that's that's where you're going to. Where where did we first get this piece of information? Uh, secondary source uh, is somebody going and being like, this person said this. And then, you know, you, and then for me, when I start my process, I'm onto the tertiary sources. So that's that's instead of going and reading an article that I picked out of a journal uh, where usually that's like fairly secondary. Uh, instead, I'm reading a book that has been published uh, that is digesting large numbers of articles. And so that's where I start the process. Uh, and that gives me a fairly good groundwork for where things are going. And I usually try and read several of those. Um, the trick with that is that usually with published books, uh, historians won't actually fight all that much. Uh, you With published books, there's I don't know if it's a desire for politeness or if it's just seen as, as beneath them, but you don't see you don't see much conflict and it isn't until you get into the articles when the knives yeah. come out and like 
the knives really come out in the articles. <laughs> and, uh, and so that's, so what I end up doing is I'm reading the books, I'm getting a lay of the land. I'm getting a, a good sense of where, where a lot of uh, who the, the main scholars and the movers and shakers of this are. And then I start digging into the articles. I go into JSTOR and the like, and that's where I get a sense of what the scholars are actually fighting about. And what aspects are are presented in the in the much more accessible books as as you know broadly uh, accepted and they actually turn out to be quite controversial and that's where you'll end up getting in, in an episode where i'm like well there's a bunch of different theories on this um and then be, because i'm a lawyer before i i go forward uh then i go back and i i check uh, the primary sources. I the I think the most important thing I, I learned in the entirety of law school was always everything important is is always in the footnotes. And so if I if I see anything in the footnotes, if I'm seeing anything being referenced, I go and check that if I at all can. Um, I'm I I only speak English, so I uh, am heavily reliant on translations. Um, but. Uh, that ends up leading me down some very strange paths. Uh, and every now and then I come across most recently, there's, there's an episode that you haven't listened to yet, uh, where I'm talking about, uh, William the Conqueror. Uh, yeah, don't tell me what happens. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, uh, for people who are listening, who, who aren't familiar with this, uh, 1066 is a really banner year in, in British history and especially English history. Uh, this is when William the Conqueror comes over from Normandy and, uh, he becomes William the Conqueror. Um, this is often treated by historians as kind of a year zero uh, for for English history. Uh, obviously, I don't agree. I've spent 11 years in that period before. Um, but uh, what's interesting is in large numbers of the tertiary sources I read, they talk about how after he's constructed his fleet, he goes down the River Diva and he goes into the channel and then he hooks right and, and stops off at St. Valerie and stays there for about a fortnight. And... I was reading this and I'm like, okay, well, that's kind of odd. It's directly across from Hastings, but why? And it's just kind of accepted. Or And occasionally they're like, he he may have encountered a storm, but that's it. So I, I, I go to the primary source uh, and I'm reading uh, William of Poitiers, who is William the Conqueror's kind of hype man. He is his biographer. Uh, and for the most part, nothing that, uh, that Duke William does is bad. Um, I'm sorry about all the Williams. This is Normandy. That's how they do. Uh, <laughs> But uh, uh, Poitiers is like, holy hell, this was a complete disaster. We got blown off course. A bunch of ships sunk. People were drowning. Horses were drowning. We had to bury a bunch of bodies. I had to go. Uh, the, the Duke had to go and exhume the body of a saint at St. Valerie and prop him up in front of the, uh, the church to get everybody to quit from deserting. And, and so it was just like this complete bonkers tale that includes tomb raiding uh, and none of this, the secondary, uh, the ter uh, tertiary sources were talking about it. So that's a major reason why I often go back to the primary sources, because you end up in a situation where, like you were talking earlier about narrative building, everybody's building a narrative. Uh, the primary sources are building narratives, the secondary, everybody, you, the world's too complex to not build a narrative with any well, we're, a, we're a storytelling species. Yeah. 
that's how that is fundamentally how we understand the world we live in and all the sort of the you know all the fancy stuff like sociology that's great but like <laughs> fundamentally our actual brains are about storytelling yeah and so you end up in this thing where where and I think this is where going back to the primary sources is important you you go and you say okay well what's being cut out because anytime you're crafting a narrative there are things that have to be cut uh, it's also what makes Z's uh, uh, contribution to the podcast so important because there are a tremendous amount of things that get cut out of the written record uh, before the primary sources are even like like put pen to paper. And the only way we can really unearth any of those things is through archaeology. So uh, that's a lot of what we we grapple with. We try and and take what is functionally uh, a very easy nationalist tale, uh, especially with something like the conquest and say, okay, well, actually, how was this? And, and what, what was the human experience going on? Like uh, being part of this or being subject to it, you know? And so, I mean, some small genocide, minor, minor genocide. Yeah. 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 No, it's, it's, it's so funny because some of this I've known broadly, but you've got a, you've got a thousand years, which is just anybody who was resident in Britain, just getting their ass kicked always by new some new group of people like the Romans and then these people from, you know, the low countries, basically kind of angle, you know, whatever, whoever these people were. And then the people from Scandinavia. I mean, it's just constant, just constant. I mean, it's it's a weird history. I mean, I know that that compresses a lot. I know it that. Does. <laughs> no, it obviously does. But yeah, there, there's and I part of I think what's the story is as we kind of knew it, but you uncover it in its detail as you go along, especially the way sort of Jamie tackles it with this um, intensity is it there. There's a sort of relentless nature to, yeah, the domination and the cycles of domination. And they seem to increase as they go forward. And our eyes are on Britain. Um, but this is also happening on the continent of Europe as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. There are cultural shifts and systems being put in place that mean that the everyday people really are in for it and they it keeps kind of getting worse um and it's yeah and 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 what i guess one of the things i mean if you if you step way way back fifty thousand feet you basically have these i was going to say first aggressive rising population but not only that that's not it's not totally clear why the why the these people from like jutland and stuff you know head over but basically People from a bit east just coming into the British Isles and, and, you know, they're coming for different reasons, but you just have and and they're coming from generally similar, generally similar territory, albeit hundreds of years apart. And it's almost, you know, it's it's uh, it's almost the way that, you know, you have the jet stream in the Atlantic. There's a pattern and and there's a pattern of people coming in and even uh, and. I, I know in one of the recent, or what was for me one of the recent episodes, talk about, I guess someone, it was one of the, you know, uh, questions from readers. Someone said kind of like, well, aren't the aren't the Scandinavians basically like the Anglo-Saxons? I mean, heck, Denmark kind of brings them all together. And you make the point like, well, it's hundreds of years yeah. apart. They may have been from a similar area, but that doesn't mean they're the same people. But again, the geography, the trend of of people's coming in and the fact that it's all kind of topped off by a different group of quasi Scandinavians with the conqueror. I mean, we think of them as kind of French, but they're basically French speaking. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, French speaking Vikings. Yeah. I, uh, 
I, I think a lot of this just comes down to the fact that we as a species migrate. Uh, and I, I feel like one of the important things to know about like the long arc of history and the uh, one of the lessons to learn from this is that uh, there's no pure ethnic moment. This is what what like white supremacists are desperate for uh, and why why the word Anglo-Saxon has become such a hot button issue. Um, but there is no pure ethnic moment. There is no pure cultural moment. Uh, there there's a- anything that any any group that's trying to to talk about something like that is engaging in a cultural imaginary imaginary. They're just making this up and then re- trying to reach back to this this portion but we've always been mixing we've always been interact interacting every time we look at archaeological digs and z can talk about about this much better than i can we find out that we're underestimating the effects of trade of travel uh every time uh we're constantly finding that we actually had much more deep links and we were moving around a lot more um way further back and i feel like that is one of the most important aspects of knowing really any period of history but i think this is in in our era uh a very important thing to know about british history um due to the heavily politicized nature that that this period of history has taken on is that it is it is a melting pot uh and history always has been well, I think in your, your, you were speaking to the sort of, if you look from the perspective of Britain, you do see, because it is an island, you can see these waves of in-migration that happen. And, but there's this sort of underlying assumption, assumption that these are always... Um, Aggressive? Uh, well, and, and sort of dominating, that it's, it's the migration in that's dominating, and that did happen. Um, I think part of what we find in the podcast and kind of what we like we more focus on is that the domination isn't happening on this population ethnic scale. It's much more happening through the government structures. So we're talking about the elites dominating everyone else. Mm-hmm. Your everyday person in Britain was not going to be dominated heavily by an in- migrating um, ethnic group from some Germanic tribe coming in. It's they're being dominated by you know, government noble entities in this case of developing feudal system coming down and demanding taxes and forcing mm-hmm. them to live in on the land in such a way that, uh, you know, they don't have power over what they produce. That's the real system of domination. It's not these immigrations and movement that have always been happening. And we can see, and this is where archaeology kind of speaks back to the record or talks back to the record in a way that's informative, um, is there we have evidence that there were a lot of migrations and a lot of contact that didn't have that kind of do- systemic mm-hmm. domination. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, mm-hmm. it's not inherent to that kind of contact. Uh, but feudal systems, nobility, right. um, that always does. That's 100%. One of the things that comes up is sort of a recurring theme. Certainly, I would say from the podcast in the sort of the middle Anglo-Saxon period is you know, the sort of the top line, or I guess late Anglo-Saxon period, you know, the top line is, well, this new dude from like Norway or, or Denmark came in and like took over. And, but you make the point that, you know, that sucked for like the, the local elderman or whatever. Mm-hmm. He lost everything. But for a lot of the, you know, just the peasants, kind of like whatever, you know, kind of, it's just the same, same gig, different guy at the top and, and, and might not have mattered that much at all to those to those people the other 
part of this, and this is, I don't know, it's a, it's a, it's a more politically fraught uh, topic in our, in our current world. But the other dimension of what you're saying is there's no moment of indigeneity either. Um, yeah. Everything is, is in flux. And, you know, one thing that one other thing came up in another, I, th- I think it was actually, I think it came up in the Ava series, although it wasn't about her specifically. I, I guess it was about Cheddarman, which again, one of these like ancient British dudes who <laughs> gets dug up and everybody's like sampling his DNA and all this kind of stuff. And that... You know, the assumption in Britain is like, well, this guy probably had like a Cockney accent and he was, uh, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever the different British football teams you got, all that's kind of have. But in fact, he's black. And this came out of or, you know, what we would visually think of this as a black person or I don't know if it's, you know, North African, but not a white person. And people got really freaked out about this because like he's british so of course he's white yeah this was and, a you know cheddar man was an amazing moment because yeah. cheddar man had been a, a find that had known that for a really long time cheddar man's an old find yeah this uh this body i want to say he's five thousand years old six thousand years old oh god i will have to look that up i think yeah i think it's it's uh i think it was 2500 bce i think uh, doesn't look a day over 2000 i yeah. remember off the top of my head maybe, i'm sorry maybe google that <laughs> yeah <laughs> but he's an old find, um, and he he would have been living a at this I'm I'm confident of a Neolithic existence, um, and it w- wasn't until recent that our recently that our technology got to a point where we could sample these guys' DNA and start to ask questions of like how does this person actually look, um, and like you said the assumption was that he'd look a lot like the people that are living there today extant, especially because we can tell that people living in the nearby town are direct descendants of this man. Um, they, he, a close relationship. Yeah. I was way off. I think I was thinking of the red, uh, red lady of Pavia. Uh, that's, uh, 7,100 BCE. So, okay, so this is, we're pushing so 10,000 yeah. years. Yeah. Yeah. 9, yeah. There you go. Yeah. But the, the, I did remember he's Neolithic. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the key. But, we do know that that this man has descendants in modern day Britain in the same town, like that, like people have just stayed there, um, and so the assumption was that this man would look a lot like those people. Uh, turns out, no, he's got dark skin. There, the the markers there are clear that if you were to reconstruct this man, they made new reconstructions of him. Visual dark skin, um, and for <laughs> because our modern concept of race was built in the last three, four hundred years around the extraction of people from Africa. Uh, that is the concept of black that we've created. That's that's why our whole concept of race is what it is, is because it's built around the transatlantic slave trade um, mm-hmm. and excusing and making that OK. So there was this belief that what made Europeans visually distinct was also tied into identity, which was also tied into some sort of inherent biologic uh, superiority. And so that all crumbles <laughs> when you see that actually just go back a few thousand years, your direct ancestors, uh, actually in fact have dark skin. They're not black in the sense that black is a very, you know, it's a very modern. Con- yeah. It's a modern concept. It's a binary. It's a very yeah. modern. Yeah, binary. It, yeah. It doesn't like quite, you can't quite bend it that way. Uh, but, but it, certainly it did really not look people. like, yeah, it did not look like a lot of people in England were expecting this guy to look like. 10,000 years ago, England, there weren't white people in England, probably. That probably didn't exist yet, is what we're now thinking, is that that white skin is even more uh, 
like it, a it, newer, it's uh, a newer uh, morph than yeah. we even thought. And we already knew it was pretty new, but we were getting really upset messages around that. Yeah. <laughs> we got hate was mail. It, wasn't it? I think there's an, in, maybe it was that same episode that, that, I mean, again, this is not the, the genetic stuff is not the main thing that the podcast is about, but that the adaptive, basically where you got light skinned people in Europe had to do with like folic acid. And basically I always figured, and I, again, I hadn't given it a lot of thought that has to do with sun intensity, uh, basically protecting yourself from, you know, skin cancer basically. But, but it's not that it's this, it's kind of dragged along with something about birth advantage because of folic acid or one thing that is, it's still in flux because this is, this is part of the science that we are, both archaeology, physical anthropology, and medical science are all still on the verge of really understanding how nutrition um, is more than just what we eat, and that it's these full body systems that interact with our environment. So we're still learning all of this. And so it's kind of a new realization that our exposure to sunlight not only impacts vitamin D, which is very important, um, but that has an interaction with folate. And that we know, once we discovered that, has a huge impact on fertility um, and and particularly uh, fetal health. Mm-hmm. So there's a through line there saying perhaps this might have been why once pale skin shows up in the genome in the north, it right. spread pretty rapidly where it was available because you would have had uh, more babies born healthy enough to survive. That's an idea, not we we're, right. Not like yeah. it's fact, no. but is a theory that has gained some currency. Yeah. Is probably or as opposed skin cancer, most of us who get skin cancer, I'm I'm very pale skin and have freckles. It's a concern of mine, <laughs> but I would get it in my fifties or later. Chances are I would have had my children. So the impact of that, right. basically, if if white skin spreads that quickly, the pressure is probably earlier on in the life cycle than cancer right. allows for. That's the idea. Right. I mean, that makes and, and and I guess this is most couples, certainly women, but most couples who've had kids, you know, the whole thing with folic acid, mm-hmm. everybody you know knows about that. And, and I guess that if that theory is right, that it is uh, the sciences or the or the nutritional science is connected to that at some level. Like, that's why you take this folic acid supplements to kind of get yeah. More of whatever your whatever the sunlight gets you if you have paler skin, whatever. Yeah, that's um, that yeah. is what they're slowly putting together, and that's where the science gets really fun for me. Is I, I really enjoy that. But just to be clear for anyone listening, this is an idea at this point people are playing with. I think pretty right. promising, but I can't. Not like it's around. established yeah, fact no. or whatever. Not yet. Okay, I, I'm a, I'm a little sheepish about bringing this up. Another big find of mine from the pandemic is Time Team. Yeah, the, the British archaeology show and. I love that show because for those who are listening who aren't familiar with this, this was a show that went on for about 20 years, um, a UK show. You can get it on Amazon. You can you can find it on YouTube. You can see it everywhere. But it, but it was a, a British show, and it's a very British show. <laughs> I mean, not only is everybody British, but they're digging in Britain, right? So it's all – so you really get a – you know, and, and there's kind of three or four stages. There There's the, the Roman stuff, the Anglo-Saxon stuff, the medieval st- – you know, it's and you, you get – and it, it has a good – combination at least to me of it's just fun to watch you get to know the different archaeologists as characters and they they don't make it too corny but there's all the interplay but you also get a sense of how archaeology works Mm -hmm. and and the and and it's just i guess i mean obviously you guys are familiar with it but that's i i've learned a lot about about british and you know not not you know 
the whole history of the island, the whole, all this kind of stuff. Um, I don't really have a question. No, I, I think <laughs> I just I, had a little I, monologue about that. I, I guess. like how you bring them up because they're they're one of the they're a show I kind of look up to in terms of how they are able to be entertaining but still completely honest. And yeah. when we also do this, where sometimes if I remember early on, Jamie was panicking because he was moving into the Anglo-Saxon era. Um, it's known as the Dark Ages, especially early on, because there are no there's the records just disappear after Rome. They're just not, they're not writing stuff down as much. Um, there's a lot more illiteracy generally. And the records that are being made are made in such a way that they're less likely to survive. So we just, it was much harder for him to try and look at this and be like, how do I even do this? Um, and part of what we decided at that moment was the only way forward was to be honest about that. That's actually what you're, that's, that's the thing to be yeah. taught is yeah. what does this mean not to have records? How do we responsibly teach when there are less records? Um, and time team has always been stuck there in my mind as someone who really does that well, because they will sometimes dig a trench and go, we didn't find anything. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, here's honestly yeah, yeah. what that means if we didn't find anything. It could mean there was nothing there. It could mean it disintegrated. Um, and I think that's what good teaching is, is not trying to pretend like to, you know, you teach the null result if if something's not there, you still found something. That that's your result, and that's what honest education is. Yeah. Well, there's um. God, I'm spacing on the host. What's the host's name? The host host. Tony Robbins. Robinson. Tony Robinson. So one of the for, again for people who haven't watched the show, uh, one of the one of the dynamics in the show is that there's this Tony Robinson guy who's not who's very into archaeology, but he's you know kind of a host entertainment mm-hmm. guy in the UK. So he's the host. And then there's this guy Mick Aston who who passed away a few years ago, but was the kind of the the expert in most of those shows. And there's always this interplay where, which you know gets a little corny sometimes but you know kind of almost like a routine between them but where uh robinson will be like oh great man we came here and we found fucking nothing great job <laughs> and ass is like no 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 no, we didn't find nothing we had learned a lot because we thought there was going to be this and in fact there wasn't and we found out that you know this this we thought there was going to be a big cathedral here and actually there's nothing and yeah. that and and that is not a failure we learned a lot yeah. um it's a real you know for for people who are listening who i I, it's a great I mean it's another it's another thing that I'm coming to the end of right oh. um, but in any case so um, anyway I could I could literally keep talking about this for hours because I love this <laughs> stuff but I want to I want to respect your time and how generous you've been with it so Jamie one of the things we talked about was also to talk a little bit about the um, the business of doing this stuff the, the the you know of doing a podcast and it sounds from what you describe, you had some of the advantage that I had with TPM in the sense that one can, through happenstance and luck, get in at the beginning of something and, and you kind of rise with it. And for me, I'm happy to say, yes, I was a genius and that's why it was so <laughs> successful, but also kind of like this whole thing was happening and you rise with it and you had that and you have a very successful podcast, but you're still an independent. Yes. And all of us who who do different versions of this independent media thing, we have these uh, very often predatory or indifferent platforms and media companies that you kind of can't really operate without and yet or not totally. And yet they are. You really have to watch yourself. Yeah, I um... Honestly, so what concerns me about about where we're at right now with podcasting uh, is that 
you're right. I, I got in early. Uh, I there were already podcasts going, but there weren't a lot. And and I tend to refer to it as the punk rock stage of, of podcasting. And it's podcasting is one of the last media spheres to have that. And and I think we're in danger of losing it right now. Um, we have we have large corporations that are gobbling up podcasts uh, and are setting up uh, basically walled gardens uh, where if if you're part of of their um, their system you can only listen to their podcasts. Others are creating uh, environments where uh, where they're buying up podcasts and you can listen to them. Uh, um, uh, you, you can listen to other podcasts on their server, but you can you can only listen to th- like a certain podcast. So we're 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 in that p- period where everything is getting, um, for lack of a better term, balkanized. But on top of mm-hmm. it, it's being done uh, through these corporate interests who are trying desperately to monetize what's happening. And what I find pernicious about all of it um, is that. What I'm making right now, uh, I don't think I'd be able to do it if I was launching uh, today. Uh, I, I I think that I would have been easily gobbled up. Uh, you mentioned the the predatory services. There's a lot of services out there that are, that are 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 uh, trying to sell their services to new podcasters, saying you can become the next big podcast. You just need to invest a crazy amount of money in me, and I'll make it happen. Um, but beyond that, there's also just the sheer economics of of the uh, what's happening to to podcasts, where you know th- these things. Uh, they take a lot of time. They take uh, money to host. Uh, they, they take equipment. Uh, there's all kinds of things that go into it. And so podcasters are trying to find ways to uh, pay for that. And I feel like a lot of, of creators, a lot of podcasters have fallen into a trap that I'm very fortunate to have avoided, which is the advertising trap. I think if I, if I went advertising, I think I would have, I, I would have sunk years ago because I'm doing a really niche show. I, I'm a guy with an American accent who's doing intensely granular history, uh, that occasionally has dick jokes in it. Like it's, it's very, as far as, as, as something that's going to appeal to a broad broad audience this isn't it and mm-hmm. so if you're if you're building your business big but just to just to give our, our our listeners a sense as history podcasts go you do have a big audience it i'm not saying it's the big i mean i, I don't know how big the audience but this is this is your full-time gig i mean you yeah. can do you know this is this is a successful podcast it may it doesn't have, it doesn't want to be sort of broadcast you know kind of mass audience but it right. but it is a six it's 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 similar to in in a way to what tpm is both has a small audience and a big audience mm-hmm. right but i mean this is a very successful enterprise right and that's i i think that's what i'm getting at is because i i i decided i didn't want to go advertising right from the start and instead i because i didn't want to be beholden to advertisers and have them be the boss and then be constantly under this fear that I'm not, I'm not being broadly accessible enough to get a huge audience to make advertisers happy. Um, 
and and eventually just <laughs> i i feel like that instinct end uh, ends up with podcasts becoming very much like sinclair radio or uh, clear channel radio where you're just hearing the same thing on every uh every area and so i i wanted to avoid that and so i very intentionally set the podcast up where there's nothing between me and the listener um if if you want to support the podcast you can if you don't I'll keep making it uh, as long as I can. And that has allowed me to remain independent and make a, what is functionally a very niche show. Um, it, I, I think it is uh, successful as far as independent shows go. But but that being said, I'm, I, I don't have the numbers anywhere near the numbers that you would see of like, say, Joe Rogan. Uh, it, it, right, it's, right, right, right. Yeah. Or even in the genre, like I think hardcore history is probably the, in terms of like the numbers that he can take on because he takes on like already popular concepts, yeah. uh, does right, the most popular right. parts and then kind of moves on. And what we set out to do was teach history in a way that like really facilitates what you would get from a real history course, which is like the mm-hmm. critical thinking bits, the understanding of yeah. sources. Yeah. All totally of that. different. And, and just the, I mean, like if you, you've mentioned a few times over the course of the series, Jamie, that like, now and again, people say, like, dude, get on to the Norman Conquest. <laughs> yeah, what yeah, the yeah. fuck, right? Like, like, what's taking so long? And it's definitely one of those things. Like, you've got to be down to be hanging with the Anglo-Saxons for a long, long time. Because it's, it's, it's really nitty-gritty. But you know, they were kind also of each, there for yeah. a long time. Yeah, That's part of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. 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 yeah exactly, exactly. The only reason that this can exist, this piece of kind of cool pop history, um, is because Jamie in particular found a way to just say, just, you know, give me the five bucks if you can manage directly. There's no one else trying to skim the top of that. And I will, that will pay enough for my time and the equipment to keep this going exactly Mm -hmm. as it is. Um, When you put advertisers and other corporations in it, then they have demands like larger audiences, which means that you are suddenly have to bring in people who maybe, you know, Aren't into exactly this. Well, and 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 the dirty history, uh, the dirty secret of, of history podcasting is that for the most part, everybody wants to hear about a history story they've already heard, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is why the most mm-hmm. successful history podcasts are the ones that are like, okay, we're going to talk about Rome. Now we're going to talk about World War II. Now we're going to talk about World War One. Now we're going back to Rome. And, <laughs> and so, well, you know, yeah. it, it's it's funny that I in 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 my own little thinking about things, I have toyed with the idea of 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 starting basically like a history book club because um, it mixes to, you know, a lot of my professional phases of, of, my, of my life. And, you know, those exist, but the ones that exist and are doing it at scale, it's, you know, half of history is World War II. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then there's some Roman stuff. And, and that's great, right? I mean, the people are into what they're into. But my, I, I have always gravitated to, towards things that most people consider very obscure. And that's, to me, that's the thing I like. I, I know about World War I know what happened in World War II. I'm not mm-hmm. saying I'm in the expert on it, but I, I know what happened. And, and, and I go on these kicks for periods of years when I'll just some distant thing. And that's what I'm, you know, that's what I'm into. But on the, on the issue of this business part of things, one of the things that there's two dynamics that we have dealt with over the years. One is that I'm sure you have have uh, noted is, you know, you have VC backed companies that want to get you and lock you in. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is something that anybody who's listening to this who has any 
interest in doing anything independent, you got to really watch out with that. You got to really watch out. And what people what people don't always get is that the real model there is we're going to sign a lot of people up, get you locked in. But this is a VC play. So we're selling this company. And to get the payoff on the sale, at some point, we need to lock you in enough that we're going to jack those prices way up. Yep. Mm -hmm. And it's at the point at which you're so locked in, you're stuck. Mm -hmm. Now, that's one thing. Now, another thing is that I think is almost as big a deal, but is more paradoxical, is that you have these, you know, these mega platforms. And again, in our experience, one of the most dangerous things about those platforms is not their money sucking or mercenary or unethical stuff it's that they're so big that their offhand actions can destroy you oh yes not because they wanted to destroy you just because you're you're a little flea and they turned around and they and they sat on you now there is a there is a period in the, in the show where you were were managing the subscription the 5 bucks a month and you know we just upped our prices to $6 a month for our core thing so that's mm-hmm. going to be very familiar to our uh to our listeners and readers um you were doing that through Amazon and at one point Amazon said you know we're not going to do that anymore and they owned the subscri- they owned the list so you couldn't even say okay well I got to find a new s- service you had to kind of beg everybody to sign up all over again I had to rebuild it oh it was a nightmare and uh Now how long ago was that roughly like oh, when, God, what what times 15 that was 2015 Yeah it was 2015 uh that uh I don't think I've ever had a panic attack quite like that one. uh, But yeah, uh, I was fortunate in that. uh, The only thing that saved us was that the listeners stepped up and saved the show. It was was everyone who was listening and liked the show decided to save it um, in the course of a month and and did that for us. And we were rescued. But what Amazon did, as I'm sure, is whoever built that subscription service that our show and a bunch of others relied on... um, was probably some random VC who decided that was going to be his thing and he either left or got fired, something like that. And they decided, now we don't need that anymore. And they gave us, what, 60 days notice? Yeah. Now, was it was it something that had been independent and then was bought by Amazon? Yeah. No, or was no, it just no. always... I, you said VC. I, you meant VP. We, oh, sorry. Yeah. My, oh, okay. Yeah, my, my thought is, is that, uh, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm with Z. I, I think that this was somebody's brainchild and it just, it for Amazon, it wasn't turning enough product. Like, like they were taking a cut of all, the, uh, all mm-hmm. of the subscriptions. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they were making money off the thing, but apparently, I guess it wasn't enough and... And well, and also these these things are just I mean, it's it. I see it as largely a matter of their scale, because, you know, we have in our small operation, which has never been more than 25 people, we'll do something for a while and then we'll say, OK, you know, it's not really working. And that doesn't mean a million reasons why, you know, yeah. someone had an idea and we're just moving in a different direction. And that's life and things move on and you change and stuff like that. But when you're that big, you, you, you know, and, and we've had this with, with Google and everybody that, that they can destroy you. Just, just, they just decide to move in a different direction and anybody can move it. There's no, yep. there's no law against moving in different directions, but when the, when the, when the actor is so big, Oh yeah. I mean, I mean, Facebook, and this is largely through fraud, but Facebook destroyed a whole part of the media ecosystem oh, by their College focus on video. Gone. I think I, for <laughs> yeah. me, I feel like, 
that decision of Facebook, I was noticing there's a dearth of comedy period these days in all of media. And it's very possible because it was that was actually that was one of the cradles of the next generation of comedians. And it was just ripped out from under them. And sure enough, you can see it years later. We have less comedy. Um, And that's because Facebook decided to lie to like everybody shares and awful. Well, it's it's funny because, you know, back in in like 2006, seven, eight, round about then, there was, uh, you know, you, you also can, if you're nimble and clever, you can also, you know, draw some money out of the VC thing. And there was this VC-backed operation called Next New Networks. And this was when there was just some beginning of vlogging, mm-hmm. right? And I made a deal with them that we would produce a show, a daily four days a week show, which I'm, I'm telling you, man, it was like. It, it, it was so much fucking work. Yeah. I mean, for five minutes show a day, but like I had to think about it. I mean, it was constant. But but the contract was for 15 grand a month. Wow. And at the time, that was like a third of the budget of the entire organization. And so it was a huge amount. I could I could grow the organization, blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah, blah. In any case, and, and the great thing was, was that we got that money no matter who saw it, right? I mean, we still, we needed mm-hmm. to make it work for them kind of, but it sort of wasn't our problem. And so... I knew that it is really hard to get anybody to watch video. No one wants to watch video, right? And it's just so hard, so, so hard. And that was kind of a formative experience for me, you know, years and years back. And this had been a kind of a constant thing in in media publishing and news and every, you know, kind of who's going to figure out because the the ad rates are so high, so high. Who's going to figure it out? And then suddenly like, wow, Facebook cracked that one. Mm -hmm. And everybody thought they cracked it. I can crack it. And in fact, they had not cracked yep. it. It was yep, all lie. Yeah. But all sorts of media organizations shifted everything to video. There was even some push to do it within TPM, not just just because um, at the time we were we were 100% ad based. And the money was so great. Like let's like what can we do in video? <laughs> That's where the money is. So, in yeah. getting on my soapbox here. But the point is is that the scale of these companies, oh, even yeah. when they're not trying to hurt anybody, just their existence is, can be highly destructive. Well, I, I think I, I think as as creators, if, if there's anybody uh, who's listening who uh, is thinking about launching uh, something like this, one of the things to keep in mind with with these businesses is to uh, be very careful who owns your information uh, i mean facebook obviously that that's its own thing but i, I was thinking uh and that's very important but i i'm thinking more along the lines of like patreon patreon is hugely popular but there is a bunch of people who who realized uh to their horror that uh that by having all their memberships go through patreon and patreon could just change the terms of of everything at a whim without your your agreement whatsoever and there wasn't an easy way for them to get their members off of patreon and go elsewhere uh because patreon has your your membership roles you don't have them you, you might be able to gather them but like patreon i think is a pernicious one because i think a lot of people if you're a uh a listener, an audience member, a consumer of of someone, a creator that you like, you think that going to Patreon is one of those places where there is no negotiation between you and that person whose work you like. Um, but actually, Patreon takes a ton of money from creators. They demand a lot of extra work from creators. That is not the actual thing that you think you're like t- hmm. paying well, for. They're not demanding it, but the environment of Patreon... N- n- 
demands it anyway. Yeah, because you, you end up that. with uh, uh, the obligation creep. Yeah, because yeah. The, there's this uh, the there's an incentive to offer a bunch of extras to to get along with along with the members. And the smaller some of these creators are, the more that that ends up sucking up your time, making these little tidbits and thank yous that right. take away from the actual work. And the poor audience members are just trying to support. Yeah. <laughs> they don't understand how right. all this works. But right, the way right. Patreon structures itself hides how much they're actually taking from the creators on the front end. And then this the structure that they've facilitated that then takes the time away from the creators. Um, it's... Yeah, I wonder how many uh, creative projects have been lost to Patreon. A ton. I've, yeah. I've watched it happen in Portland because we have a huge creator economy here. And we've watched friends and people that we admire really make cool stuff, put it on something like Patreon and not be able to keep it going where had they had a system been less predatory they would still be going. And I think that's what's important for not just people who are trying to launch their own projects, they'll pay attention if you are, but if you are an audience member or a consumer or a fan, the thing, you know, try your best to go the extra mile to take care of them if you wanted them to continue to exist because they are under constant predation. Um, the, they, the things that you often think you're trying to support them with don't actually support them. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, try to pay attention, try to take care of them, because these things will go very quickly. You'd be surprised. And, and you know, we have always been very, I don't know, intense, uptight, whatever you want to say about kind of like our data, our software stack, like, you know, and it didn't occur. I mean, I understand why they would do it, but it didn't. So I guess with Patreon, you can't just download your even, let alone the sort of the, the credit card processing, even the sort of the emails and the basic stuff. I'm or, not entirely sure, uh, but by having everything go entirely through their servers, it's you're at their mercy. Uh, right. I, it takes extra work to do these things, Indy, but I, I think uh, it for creators pays off simply because you at no point can you have some random VP going change the terms and jack mm -hmm, everybody's mm -hmm. rates up, which is what happened on mm -hmm. Patreon. Uh, mm -hmm. And if you need to move... And when you say rates, you mean like the cut? Their no, cut. no, rates. Oh. They, they actually tr tr uh, they, they changed everyone's membership. So if I said, if I agreed to pay someone $3 a month, they suddenly said, oh, that's actually three forty. Yeah, because we're going to add a fee onto that and now you're paying. And so all of a sudden, all these creators had just all uh, a ton of supporters just dropping off their roles because they're outraged thinking that it was the creator who jacked up their rates. A lot of podcasts is interesting that day. Interesting. Interesting. So, I mean, this is, I mean, again, this is, we've, we've been able to avoid this and, and it, I didn't know specifically about Patreon, but yeah. I would assume there's also, but there's also the issue that I'm, I'm sure people starting podcasts deal with now. And we've seen this even to some extent, which is that, um, you sign up and someone says, Hey, don't you have a Patreon? Like yeah. you've got that now I got to put my credit card in again. Like just, can you just do Patreon? <laughs> so there's that, yep. there's also that lock-in factor that people, that, that their network effects create a certain ease for consumers yep. and you get kind of pushed in. In any case, you've been very generous with your time. Like literally this is, we're going through the, the, the four or five different topics I could talk for hours about. <laughs> and you've been very generous with, with, um, with your time. Let me just, let me, let's just finish by okay so someone is listening to this and they say okay jamie seems like a pretty interesting guy and i'm curious what happened uh on the british isles for the last couple thousand years what is your what's your pitch for listening to the bhp 
Oh God! That we didn't actually already hit. Yeah, I, well, I just just <laughs> I guess describe it. What what I would describe it what, as? What is it? It's so it's a chronological history of, of the British Isles, uh, starting all the way back in the Ice Ages. I do my best to uh, create a uh, an understandable narrative flow. Uh, I will take you through the various kings and queens and everything, uh, but I also pay a lot of attention to what is happening with the common people. I pay attention to uh, cultural uh, developments. You're going to have entire episodes that uh, are just about how food is produced uh, or cooked. Oh, I, I, I did one that was entirely about feasting culture. Um, I really like food, so food <laughs> ends up coming back in a lot. Uh, but uh, um, the idea, the the overall idea is for, at the end of this, for uh, listeners to have an idea of continuity uh, and to understand how all of these moments that they may have heard of in isolation, how they built up, how they happened, and what it would have been like to experience it on the ground um, and uh, what what the people who are usually pushed to the margins of history uh, would have been experiencing. So I pay attention uh, to common folk. I pay attention to women. Uh, and all of this is intended to provide a, a more holistic idea of the past. Um, I would say that it is not just for people who are interested or are connected to Britain. Uh, a lot of people tend to think that uh, you need to have British descent to take an interest in British history. Um, one of the, the wonderful things about about history, when at least when I think it's done correctly, uh, is that it's it's not a story about any one particular ethnicity. Truly, what it is is it's the story of uh, humanity, and as such, it it can be it can be uplifting at times. It can be horrific uh, and and uncomfortable at other times, and. It takes you through all of these aspects of just who we are and who we have been as a species. It's, it's, it's our story. It's who, it's where we have all come from. And I think that's one of the great, I guess, joys of history is just to see, uh, what our species is capable of. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad. Uh, <laughs> And you'll also hear really strange stories like how one particular king ended up missing his coronation feast because he was having a three-way. So there's... I, ju I just... I'm like two episodes past that. I'm like two episodes past that. I'll say this, though. You know, the other thing is, I guess, you know, eventually you're going to get into the Tudors and, and maybe the Victorians and, and, and whatever. But one of the things that is always so interesting to me, and it gets to the point of like, you know, you don't have to be British to to um, to um to be into this, is that... It's weird stuff. Yes. It's not like the British people you see today. <laughs> this is, you know, it's, 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 it's not like this is, uh, you know, Boris Johnson with just a different kind of helmet on or something. And th that's always the, the, the interest to me of history is that it's alien. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, all, it's also common. These are uh, people who, who, who are physically, they're humans like us. There's certain basic core things about the human experience, but it's also alien and strange. Very and and, and uh, you talk about the, you know, talking about the guys in Charlottesville, you know, they're, they're Anglo-Saxons, you know, as far as they're <laughs> concerned, right? But the actual Anglo-Saxons, they're very alien people. Oh, they're yeah. nothing like what, I you know, kind of... I always want the tiki torch, but... 
boys who are like, oh, Anglo-Saxon, like, when was the last time you lived in a longhouse? Like, really? I, I would like to know what the wear guild for those Tiki Torch boys would be. <laughs> <Right>. like, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, or just their interest in, in the Romans. Right. The kind of the, the whole the whole, oh, that yeah. whole that whole thing. In any case, um, for our listeners, this is a great enterprise in public history. It's a great podcast. Um, I'm not all that experienced with podcasts. I haven't listened to a lot of podcasts, but I love this one. It's really good. It's really sophisticated. It is, um, you know, if you're into history, I, you know, I find it, um, you know, irresistible. I listen to it constantly. So, so please check it out. It's the British History Podcast. And it's, you know, I guess on all the different platforms and all that kind of stuff. And so uh, thank you so much for making the time. Thank you for having us. This has been fun. Absolutely. Absolutely. The Josh Marshall podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga and TPM founder, editor in chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song. And thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen.